0: Welcome to Me, Myself, and Millie, a podcast that gives light and levity to infertility and different pathways to parenthood, hosted by yours truly, Millie Brooks, also known as an infertility sleuth. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. This is episode 48, and today we are going to talk to Whitney Henneman about her journey to parenthood. Whitney is an infertility warrior author, and has a deep faith that helped guide her through the treatment process. She wrote a book titled The Baron Cry to help other infertility warriors on their journey. And Whitney continues to mentor and help other women through a support group that she started at her church. Whitney's faith and religious beliefs have been the bedrock to her story. So we are going to talk about that today, and we will also touch upon how important it is to take care of your mental health when going through fertility treatments. So that's what's in store, but before we dive into that conversation with Whitney, please take 30 seconds to rate, review, and subscribe to me, myself, and Millie on Apple Podcasts. If you want to be extra special. Write us a review in the comments section. It all helps with the growth of the show and it makes my heart burst. So we really appreciate it over here at Team Me, Myself, and Millie. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Welcome, Whitney. It's so great to have you on the show. Hi, Millie. Thank you. It's so great to be here. East Coast, baby. I know. We're, we're, we're coasting it right now. You're yes. on the East Coast. I'm on the West Coast. Um, what time is it there right now? Six? Yep. 6.10. Yes. Yes. Um, it's so wonderful, isn't it? The internet and how we can just all connect. I
1: know. Separated by country, but here we are. Yes. (laughs) Well,
0: first off, let's start with who you are, where you're from, and what you do.
1: Yeah. So obviously, my name is Whitney Henneman. I am 34. I was born and raised in Orlando, Florida, which is where I currently live. Um, I married my best friend, Lane, 10 years ago. We met in college, and um, he's amazing. Uh, So, But now I'm a stay-at-home mom to two miracle babies, now three and two in August, which is crazy. Um, I work as a part-time sales rep for an HR software company, and uh, that's been amazing. I love having the balance of being home with the kids and also working. And then finally, I also host an infertility support group at our church, uh, Mosaic Church, here in Winter Garden, Florida, And that's been going on since about 2015, since I was walking through my infertility journey. So it's just an amazing place where I get to meet incredible women of all walks of life and hear their stories and get to kind of walk through with them just the pain of infertility and and hopefully share kind of some of the things I've learned along the way. And is that something that you lead on your own? Yeah. So it's supported by my church, but, um, it's pretty small, which is almost nice. I like it better. People reach out to me one-on-one. And so I'll just grab coffee with women, um, as they reach out, um, you know, struggling with infertility, miscarriage, child loss, and just be able to love on them a little bit. And, uh, I, I, think you know, we're going to talk about mental illness or just mental health, but I think sharing your story is just a big part of that healing process, you know?
0: I, I so agree. I couldn't agree more. I think that, um, I couldn't heal until I started sharing
1: my story. For sure. You know? Yeah.
0: Um, well, give us a little bit of a glimpse into your fertility journey.
1: Sure. So, kind of like 30,000 foot view. My husband and I um, struggled with, I guess I struggled with infertility for four years um, and unexplained infertility and endometriosis. So to kind of start at the beginning, I was that girl who met with her OB for, you know, that preconception meeting, just because I wanted to get make sure I had all my ducks in a row. And uh, yeah, that was a big fat funny. Those those
0: preconception meetings can just be (laughs)
1: so misleading. huh? Oh my goodness. I know. Well, okay. So have you ever taken the Enneagram? No, I haven't, but I should tell me about it. It's awesome. So uh, it's so funny. I love talking about the Enneagram. So I'm actually a three on the Enneagram, which is achiever. So I love to achieve. I love to plan. I love to feel like I have control. So I think when I started my fertility journey at the time, it was like, all right, this is just another thing in life where I'm going to achieve my way into like baby glory. And that was not how it happened. So we struggled for about a year and a half before I met with our first infertility doc. And that's kind of a big step, right? Saying like, okay, I've got a problem. Like, let me go see somebody. And I didn't love the doctor. He was kind of just dismissive and Just kind of like, ah, we'll throw you on some drugs and you'll be pregnant in a few months. And so I just, I don't feel like he really heard my story or kind of what I was going through. So didn't see him again, waited a few more months and then ended up seeing this other doctor. And he was fantastic. I mean, within the first five minutes, he was like, I guarantee you, you have endometriosis just kind of from your history of like bad periods and that sort of thing. So, did a sonogram in the office. Saw that I had fluid around my um, ovaries, and so concluded that I did have it. Um, with my husband and I, neither of us having, you know, like issues necessarily. He classified it as unexplained infertility, and then kind of laid out my plan, if you will. So. Started out that I had a hysteroscopy, laparoscopy, DNC shortly after meeting with him to clear out the endometriosis, and then that was followed by three round uh, medicated rounds, and then that was followed by two IUIs before I literally had this like nuclear meltdown in the office. So it went in for my a nuclear meltdown. I really love it really was nuclear meltdown because you know like. When you're in the infertility journey, you like put your head down and you're like, yes, I'm going to do it. And like, okay, another month and I'm going to make it right. Another month and I'm going to make it. And then before you know it, you're just so burnt out. So I was literally like at my end and, and to kind of add to this a little bit. So two weeks after I had my hysteroscopy for endometriosis, my husband was dealing with a pretty severe heart issue called atrial fibrillation. And so he had, um, Uh, basically an ablation to treat his heart. And we were severely underprepared for the surgery. So he also kind of went into it and was just like, oh yeah, I'll have this ablation. And two weeks later, I'll be back, you know, ready to go. And that was not the journey that we took. It, you know, took years of recovery from that surgery. So thankfully he's fully healed today. But, you know, as he's struggling with the trauma of his surgery and all of that and trying to get better, I'm going through infertility treatments. Um, If you read my story in the book, you know, we're probably going to talk about that in a little bit. I talk about how we got struck by lightning that year, like inside our house. Wait, what? Yes. And so we live in Orlando, lightning capital of the world, or maybe the U.S., something like that, right? And um, so it's not uncommon, but we got struck by lightning literally inside our house. Nuked our house. I mean, TVs, fans, appliances, everything. So, I mean, when I tell you I had this nuclear meltdown, I mean, my brain was like literally on the fritz. And oh
0: my God, I wait know. a second. I Crazy, so, right? I have so many questions. Right? Me what? too. <laughs> Like when you get hit by lightning,
1: does everything start fizzling or like sizzling? Yeah. So our house has been struck by lightning before. Like we knew that when we moved in because certain things had been fried, but I was standing in the kitchen and Lane was like in the living room. It's kind of like all one room. And it was just this blinding white light. It felt like a rubber band on the side of my face. And I like got knocked over to the ground. And then we could just like smell like the singe smoke in the wall. Like it was just nuts, right? (laughs) So talk about just like adding insult to injury. I mean, we're both dealing with anxiety and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And so I go in, you know, for my third IUI, like, okay, here we go. Let's do this. And I didn't realize that that first appointment is to assess whether or not you have a cyst. And obviously, if you have a cyst and you're over, you can't move forward. So the nurse was all flippant, like, okay, well, you got the cyst. like, see you next month. And it was just kind of one of those, like, no, 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 wait, what? What do you mean I have to wait another month? And so I, like, got out into the, uh, um, you know, place where they check you out. And the nurse was like, all right, honey, well, when's your next appointment? And I was like, never, I'm never coming back. (laughs) Sobbed my way to the car. This is just
0: like, I mean... Cr- like fists on the wall, dragging yourself to the ground. Yeah. I, I mean, that's just what the image I'm seeing right now.
1: Yeah, I know. The When I write about it in the book, I, I kind of talk about it like the flick of a grenade, right? I mean, I had all this stuff just packed in. And that that appointment in particular, where I had the cyst and I had to wait another month, I mean, literally the flick of the pin, the pin came out and like everything just exploded. And I just kind of mentally just hit a wall. So interestingly enough, um, once I came off the medication, that's kind of when the panic attacks started happening. So anyways, but just to kind of sum it up. So we waited a couple more months, kind of got healthy again, and then, um, moved forward with IVF. And so we did on our first round of IVF, we, we, Uh, got some great embryos and transferred a five-day frozen blast assist and ended up getting pregnant with her. And then nine months later, it's funny because like right after I had my daughter, I was like, I want another. Like I just, this was so amazing. I loved every second of it, maybe not being pregnant, but just the ability to have a child. So we went back to the office and scheduled for FET number two, so frozen embryo transfer number two. And it was about 9 months after my daughter was born. And so getting ready, you know, to have my pre-op appointment, and my period's not coming, and I'm like, "What didn't you know? My body hates me. It knows. It knows I'm going in for an appointment." No, <laughs> so it called me. It's nurse. just like
0: twirling its mustache in yes. the corner and laughing at you. Right. It's like, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> "We know who's the boss here, don't we?" So go into the, or I'm sorry, I called the office and I called the nurse kind of frantic. I was like, I'm not getting my period. Like, I'm so upset. She's like, Oh honey, don't worry. She's like, take a pregnancy test tonight. Like if it doesn't come back positive or whatever, like come back and we'll do the appointment. So I was like, okay. So, I mean, I literally took the appointment or I literally took the pregnancy test, like with a glass of wine in hand, like, (laughs) you know, like no way. So Ended up, I'm pregnant and I got pregnant naturally, which is so crazy after struggling for four years and doing an IVF baby and all of that. So that kind of summed up our infer- infertility journey in a nutshell. Wow, wow. Um,
0: well, tell us about your book,
1: The Baron Cry. Yeah, so The Baron Cry is basically like the, really the physical and spiritual survival guide. I wish I could have given myself at the beginning of my journey, you know, through our uh, support group at church, when I sit down with women and we have coffee, it's like, there's so much to unpack, right? I mean, you just cannot get it all in, in a 30 minute coffee date. And so it just kind of got me thinking like, there's so much that I want to share. And there's so much that I want other people to know just like grace and things and like mental health, like we talk about, like anxiety, all this stuff. And so I just tried to compile everything. Like I felt like I learned through my journey and it's basically kind of in the form of a 20 to 21 day, um, um, devotional. So you can kind of go day by day and just each day is a different topic and just take that topic and break it down as far as, you know, how do you have hope? How do you have hope in this season? How do you, you know, deal with anxiety when you, when you have panic attacks, like what practically can you do? Um, my faith journey, you know, I feel like I, infertility really wrecked my faith in God. You know, I kind of had this view of like God where it was like, okay, I do good things and God blesses me. And for most of my life, that was the case. And I was like, cool, we have a good thing going here, God, you know? But then all of a sudden, you know, I can't get pregnant. And my husband has heart surgery. And we, you know, we, there was points we didn't know for he was going to make it. And, you know, you just really kind of get to this place where you're like, oh my gosh, you're like, where am I in the context of God? Like, is he good? Does he care about me? So I think the book really kind of journeys my faith journey of just starting from square one and saying, is there a God? Is he good? Does he care about me? Like, can he change my circumstances? You know, and if he, if he can and he doesn't, then like what's the greater meaning of my suffering? So just kind of my journey through all of that, you know, I think. Yeah. Go ahead. Keep going. I was, I
0: had a thought that as you were talking about, um, um, your relationship with God, something that really irks me about this journey and, um, and where faith comes in is Mm -hmm. a lot of people saying, um, you know, whatever, whatever happens, there's a reason, or there's a, you know, like there's, um, Every everything, you know, there's no coincidences in God's world and nothing happens by mistake and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, and everything happens for a reason. And I think that that's like really tricky for some people. It is tricky.
1: Yeah. I where,
0: think- where do you land on that spectrum?
1: Yeah. You know, my ultimate conclusion was that God is good and that he does love me and has good things for me despite the suffering that i experienced but i think that god weeps when we experience suffering you know and it like it makes me tear up because like i feel like god revealed himself so clearly to me through you know there was parts definitely i felt like i was abandoned by god but I don't think that like, you know, God kind of like sets everything up and it was like, oh, sorry you had that miscarriage. You know, God kind of planned that out. So there's a point to that. No, I think that when suffering occurs that God weeps over those things and that he cares for us and that, you know, we live in a fallen, broken world which is kind of inevitable that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that like good things are going to happen to you. Right. I mean, bad things happen to everybody. So I feel like God loves each and every one of us, you know, but it's a process for all of us to get there in all of that. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I don't think like the God that I believe in is not in the business of suffering. No, that's what I, that's kind of, that's the thing that I've been sticking to. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, You know, whatever God people sort of look to, whatever their image of God is, like, I believe we can all kind of have our own image, too. You know, like, it's okay that we're all maybe have different relationships to God. And, you know, we're all kind of figuring that out, too.
1: Yeah, you know, I felt a lot of shame when I wrestled with my faith and I questioned God. But I think on this side of things, I think that's healthy. I think that for our faith to be authentic, I think we have to wrestle with those questions. You know, and I think that suffering really forces us to reconcile. Like, do we believe in a universe of order or do we believe in a universe of chaos, right? Like either God is in control or we just kind of have to resign ourselves to like meaningless suffering. And I don't believe God causes suffering, but I believe he is in control and that he is sovereign. And, you know, when you're kind of at the low, when I was at the lowest of my low, like I found that I, you know, my belief in the God and that the hope that I had through his son, Jesus Christ was just very real. And it was just the only thing that I could cling solidly to just in the, just the very bottom pit of despair.
0: Mm-hmm. You've mentioned, um, I'm going to pivot now yes. to a little bit of a different, another thing we talked about. Um, you've mentioned that you had a hard time with panic attacks yep. during infertility treatments. Tell us what that looked like and how you dealt with them.
1: Sure so the the beginning of my trauma really started about a year after i got married and i was on birth control and i ended up having a tia which is a mini stroke on birth control and i mean full stroke like symptoms i mean it was so traumatic and funny enough i was um in medical sales at the time and i was in the e or the or with the doctor I just like couldn't come up with my words and I was just kind of fumbling around a little bit. So I went to the car, I was down in Miami and I called my dad. I was like, dad, I just feel weird. Like I just don't feel good. And he was like, you know, honey, just stay in the car, you know, eat something, you'll feel better. But then kind of as we talked, my peripheral vision went out and it was just kind of all shiny and blurry And then all of a sudden, my left arm started going tingly. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm having a stroke. So I started walking towards the ER and then realized I was walking the wrong way. So I started running because I could just feel this panic rising. And by the time I got to the ER, I was like completely nonverbal. I was just having a full blown panic attack and the guard actually out front like saw me and pulled me back. And I had to call my dad and hand the phone to the triage doctor so that he could call and give my name and kind of all the details of what was going on because I couldn't talk. And so I ended up fully recovering, but in the ICU that night, the nurse, she was so sweet. She was like, you know, if any young woman comes in with stroke, like symptoms, it's always birth control. So that was just kind of this event that I had. Right. So kind of, wow, that is fascinating. Right. And you know, what's funny is the more, I talk about it with people, people will identify like, yes, I had the same thing. And, you know, I just, I I know that tons of people are on birth control and IUDs and all of that. And it works great for a lot of people, but for my body in particular, like it just did not go well. So, I mean, there are risks associated with taking it, you know, and even the doctor that that I was with in the OR came and saw me that night and was like, my wife, who's like an anesthesiologist, has experienced the same thing, and he was like, "Now I got to get a vasectomy because she says she's getting off birth control." So, this is kind of funny how all that plays out, you know. I
0: didn't realize how common that was. I mean, it sounds like this is this is a regular thing.
1: I mean, as I talk about it with girls, like I find it's a lot more common than I thought. I mean, obviously when I was in the ICU, the nurse was just like, oh yeah, like all the time, see it all the time. And you're like, wow, like we don't, this isn't like a larger conversation, right? I mean, you go to the OB and like the first thing they want to do for any anything is just put you on birth control, right? So I, I just don't necessarily think that's the best first line of defense for- maybe for everybody. Yeah. Issues we have as women. Yeah. So fast forward, you know, through our infertility journey. And when my hormones are high, I feel great. So when, so when I was going through the medicated rounds and when I was going through, um, your medicated IUIs, uh, well, we went through three just regular medicated rounds.
0: So, Oh, okay. So like Clomid or Letrozole. Letrozole.
1: Yep. So we did Mm -hmm. three Letrozole rounds And then we did two medicated IUI rounds. So when I was medicated, I felt great, right? Like my hormones were high. And so then after I kind of had my nuclear meltdown, like we talked about, um, I was just like, okay, like I got to take a break just mentally. I need it. So got off all of the medication. And that was really, I mean, a good six months of being on them. And I plummeted so low and it ended up being that I was on a business trip and, uh, was actually with a colleague and we were in the hospital, but like in my hotel room, like I felt like I was having like these night terrors. Like I just felt like every time I fell asleep, I I was dying. And like, I texted my husband, like the location of where I was at, because like, I just knew that he was going to find me dead. And I think that's, you know, now I can identify those feelings as you know, a panic attack, like feelings of doom, feeling like you're gonna die, kind of that out of body, like just fuzzy feeling, but I couldn't identify it at the time. Uh, Went to the hospital for work the next day and um, just kept calling my husband like, babe, I think I need to go to the ER. Like, I feel like I'm dying. Like, I feel like I'm having that stroke again. Like just having all those same feelings. So ended up making it back home. And then a few days later, just was still so aggressive, all the symptoms, ended up going to the ER and um, kind of finally talked to my endocrinologist, my reproductive endocrinologist. And so he ended up putting me on um, progesterone and estrogen, which got my hormones back up and I felt so much better after that. But, you know, I mean, that was months, right? So in the midst of that, just dealing with these panic attacks, I mean, just crazy aggressive, debilitating. And, you know, this is in the middle of, you know, we're taking a break. And, ah, you know, like just that feeling like life is on hold. And my husband, you know, wasn't doing well. And so it was just so heavy and so hard.
0: So this, the panic attacks kind of started um, after your IUIs and before you went into IVF. Right. Yeah. During that break period. Right. Got it. Got it. And so how did you, I mean, how do you, how did you cope with them? Did you, um, see a psychiatrist? Did you take some anti, you know, anxiety medication? What was the solution for you?
1: Yep. Totally. And, you know, I think for everyone it's kind of trial by error, right? I went and saw a counselor, which was so helpful. Uh, When I was in the ER, they gave me Xanax. Uh, Xanax like knocks me out. So it's not, I couldn't really function on it, but absolutely, it was like in my purse. You know, I felt like uh, I needed that just to make me feel safe. So yeah, you know, just trying all sorts of different things. But truly, it wasn't until I got my hormones back to normal that I was really able to function again. But there is kind of like a list of things that I put together that were helpful in me kind of like working through that. And if you're okay with me sharing that, please go ahead. So it's an acronym pressure that I put together. And so we'll kind of walk through that together. So the first one is POP. And imagery, picture imagery that really helped me was to pop my thoughts. So this isn't good for if you're in true flight or fight, right? Um, But just kind of on a day-to-day basis, just practicing mental health of redirecting your thoughts. So kind of taking every thought captive and just saying, okay, positive or negative you know, it's easy to start going down that rabbit trail, right? Like I'm never going to be a mom. Like every I'm like left behind, like I'm horrible. Life is horrible. I'm going to die. So just like taking that thought captive really quick. And I would just try to game plan with yourself of having something that you think about that you go to when you try to redirect your thoughts. And I love horseback riding. So When I would start kind of going down that trail of thoughts, I would pop my thought and just start thinking about horseback riding, like petting the horse, uh, brushing its mane, riding through a field, um, but just allowing your brain something really fast to focus on so that you don't continue focusing on the negative. Um, The next one is rest. And this one's big for me. So it's so insulting. So important. Yes.
0: I'm so, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yes. It's so important. I know.
1: Sleep, sleep. Yes, sleep. And it's so insulting when someone going through, Um. it's, it's insulting for anyone to tell someone going through infertility, ah, just relax, you'll get pregnant, you know? And it, it's like, it, no, that's not how it works, right? And like everyone has their story of like, their sister friend's neighbor who decided to adopt and all of a sudden she got pregnant with twins and it's so beautiful or you just got to go on vacation and you'll get pregnant so for me it was like hey you know what don't stress about your stress like it's there there's studies that show that like um stress doesn't negatively impact ivf rates so along with resting like give yourself grace like if you stress and you know like start to panic like it is what it is. It's okay. It's not going to affect your ability to have a child. So the next one is exercise. And this one always makes me laugh. So when my husband, Lane and I were struggling, we both got beach cruisers. And after work, we would literally just like ride laps around our neighborhood with like, you know, a glass of wine and a solo cup. But I mean, there were nights when I would just come home so wrecked and just emotionally beat up that it was very um, therapeutic for me to just go for a bike ride in the dark of night. No one could see me crying, but it was almost like I was able to kind of release some of those feelings by exercising. I also had, you know, my glass of wine in hand, so that helped a little bit, too. <laughs> um, so just trying to find a way to release those feelings. You know, when you exercise, it produces endorphins. It was funny because with COVID our gym shut down and, uh, went back like two weeks ago. And like, as I'm working out, I could just literally feel the anxiety just kind of like coming off and you're like, yes, like it's just so important to do, especially going through infertility. Um, so the next one is share. And we kind of touched on that a little bit before, but you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a counselor. I would recommend a counselor, but going to a support group, finding a friend, like a safe friend, right? that you can share your feelings with. It really helps so much when you feel seen, when you feel heard, when you feel understood. I know that was something my counselor helped me with, with my anxiety is like, I felt like I was the only one, like, I felt like I was the only one that was like teetering on that like emotional brink of just pure survival. She's like, I have so many patients. And she's like, I have patients, you know, that just have that one Xanax in their, their purse just in case. And I like pulled out, you know, my one pill. It's like, okay, you get me. All right. Okay. That, that's just Awesome. Um, The next one would be serve. And this was something my counselor told me that I was a little bit kind of offended by, but she was like, you know, I would just really encourage you to serve someone else just to find a way to serve others. And at first it was kind of like, uh, I don't think you heard me. (laughs) I'm literally teetering on the brink of survival here. And, but honestly, so her words were what compelled me to start the, um, support group at our church. And there was really, I think there was one resolve group. Um, and I didn't have the courage to go to that one. So I was like, you know what? I'll just start my own. And so it was so beautiful. There was a couple girls that came that I got to minister to and that I was ministered to, right. Just kind of finding people who get it, who are going through the same thing as you are. Um, so for me, that purpose in kind of serving others by sharing my story or hosting that weekly meeting was so life-giving in that season. And so I really applaud my counselor in, in pushing me towards that. Um, last couple here. So understand, um, understand your anxiety by identifying the symptoms. So for me, it was like, my trauma of the stroke, that was the trigger for me. So when I would start feeling these feelings of like impending doom, like, like just kind of that out of body feeling of just like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to die. You know, I'd just be like, okay, I know I'm in an anxiety attack right now. Like I just have to ride the wave. Like it'll eventually end. I'll eventually feel better. Um, you know, like I'll take a Xanax or whatever, but like, it's going to end. Um, and just trying to be aware of your, like you, like I said, your triggers that sort of thing. Um, second, or the next one would be repeat. So for me, it's like repeating Bible verses, right? So uh, it could be inspirational quotes. Um, you know, if you're in fight or flight, you can even say very basic things like your name or your address. So like if you're in true. You know, pure panic, you can just be like, you know, okay, my name is Whitney Henneman. I live at XYZ. And just things that are concrete that you know to be true that you can hang on to in that moment. Something grounding. Yeah. Something I totally,
0: yeah. Something that kind of r- can give you some roots. Right. Your mantra. and Stabilize you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And things that, like, you know, like my things that are factual my parents are, you know, Brad and Laurel, you know, just saying things that, because with infer- or a, a mental health or anxiety, you know, sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, am I crazy? You know, and, and like the feelings you feel make you feel things that aren't necessarily logical. So just talking through things that are logical to yourself. And then, Finally, and this one is the biggest one for me is just equalize, right? So if your brain chemicals are off, if your hormones are off, um, go seek help and don't, you know, try to be strong. And like, for me, I felt like for so long, it was like this mental fortitude. I can make it through. But I mean, once I got help and I got the medication that I needed, everything else was so much better. So Um, you're not weak if you need help. It's just a matter of equalizing either, you know, like the serotonin uptake, whatever for your, um, like depression meds or whatever, um, medication can help so much.
0: Totally. And I don't think there's any shame in taking medication.
1: Not at all. And once you start talking about it, it's so funny how everyone like else kind of starts talking about theirs and they're like, oh yeah, I'm on this and that. And you're like, okay, good. You know, and like beyond infertility, you know, once you get pregnant or whatever, and then you deal with like the postpartum, and that's a big part of, you know, mental health. And a lot of my friends postpartum need, you know, depression meds. And it truly is not something to be shameful for because it's like just struggling in silence is not good for anyone, especially yourself. No, no. And
0: I I really... um I, I I want women to share it more often, yes, you absolutely. know, I think, I think we've got to normalize it totally. a little bit more. Um. Well, what makes your, well, that, before we move on to the next question, yeah. that's a beautiful little, what is it? An acronym?
1: Acronym. Ac- yep. Pressure. Acronym.
0: Acronym pressure to sort of people can take away right. and remember coping mechanisms. Right. That's great.
1: Yeah, write it down. Just kind of have it with you. Maybe like put it on a note, like in your iPhone. And when you start to get panicky, just kind of go through the list, right? And just have your things like, okay, I'm going to do this and this. And that almost as well gives you a sense of control over your anxiety or your depression.
0: Yep. What makes your blood boil about the world of infertility?
1: Ah. <sighs> You know, the thing that really makes my blood boil is just thinking back on my journey, is just living in this never-ending tension that I can't resolve. You know, I had this like raw and unrelenting and just primal desire to have a child. And it's like almost unexplainable, right? Like to my friends that got pregnant easy, like they just don't even understand just that drive, that longing. So, you know, just having that desire that controlled me and my thoughts 24-7 and then like talking about, you know, like me being the achiever that I am or the controller and just not being able to do anything about the situation just is so hard, you know, and infertility is almost just a sick game where you desire something so badly without being able to do anything about it. No, I mean there's like, you know, infertility treatments, and you know, you can kind of go down, go down the rabbit hole with all of those, but it's like I grieve the absence of motherhood and the absence of a child just daily. And it's hard for others on the outside looking in to understand that, right? Because it's not something tan. I hadn't lost something tangible. So, you know, someone loses their dad, and people are like, We're so sorry, like, I can't imagine what you're going through. And that's like horrific for that person to have to deal with. But for someone who's going for infertility, you know, and you've like, you're just grieving motherhood in and of itself, people can't really understand that. And so that was hard feeling misunderstood in that way.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's really great. Um, And I think it's chalk up another one for finding your tribe. Yeah. You know, finding your people that understand. Right and Absolutely. you can talk the same language and you know the same words and you know the you you've felt the same things before.
1: Yeah. It's really
0: powerful.
1: Absolutely. Well, and it's a journey, right? I mean, it's a seesaw of emotions and high hopes and dashed hopes and so it's never stagnant. It's always changing, right? And always trying to get back up and dust yourself off again.
0: Absolutely. Anything you wish you knew before starting all of this?
1: Yeah. I mean, if I could have known that I would have children, I think I could have weathered the waiting a lot better. But, you know, I think that's really the point of life, right? We don't know. And so it comes down to, you know, am I going to allow this hardship to make me bitter or am I going to allow it to make me better? You know, and that's where like, for me in my faith journey, it's like, I realized that like faith isn't authenticated when everything's good and you're like, yeah, God is good. It's authenticated when you're in the heat of battle and like you're surrounded by all sides and like, you don't know how it's going to end. And you're like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to have a child, but I'm going to choose to believe that God is good and I'm going to choose to have faith in him. And so, you know, I'm not saying that you know, anyways. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's great. I mean, there were so many times in my journey when I wish I had a crystal ball, right?
1: Like if I could just know, I could hang in there. If I could just have that hope, it would kind of resolve that tension that we were talking about, right? Like, okay, I can make it another two years. I can make it another three years. Um, But I think it was empowering me in the midst of it to realize that I had control over how I suffered and like I wasn't going to let infertility beat me. You know, it was like a part of my story and I was going to make it meaningful, if you will. Not, you know, that in and of itself is meaningful, but um, I just wanted it to be something that I defeated whether I had a child or not. Yeah. So um, one of the quotes that I love, and I'll read if that's okay, is Theodore Roosevelt's quote of the man in the arena. And so it says, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood who strives uh, valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, but there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who actually? Who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end, the uh, triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that is a place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who, never knew the vic- uh, who knew neither victory nor defeat. So, you know, I would say to those who are still struggling, hang in there, sister. Don't lose hope. Like you're going to get knocked down again and again, but there is light at this kind of seemingly never-ending tunnel. And I promise you that this season of suffering won't last forever. I know it feels like it right now, but if I could tell myself something and go back, I would say, honey, it's not going to last forever. Like it's going to resolve and just cling to the promise that God loves you, even when you can't feel it.
0: Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. I think it's so, um, when you're in the trenches, it's really hard. It's really hard to see, any kind of light or hope right. out there, yeah. And and I th- I always recommend to people to really um, celebrate the small victories. Yes, which is something that somebody told me early on in my journey right. was like any of those small victories. You just gotta you gotta have a party. Absolutely. You have a party. Yep.
1: I know it was funny because IVF for me in particular was just very hopeful. And I think that after years of nothing, it was like, oh my gosh, we got eggs. Like, ah, we got eggs. Like, that's amazing. And then it was like, okay, we got embryos. Oh my gosh, we got embryos. Like, it's just, for me, felt like, oh, after years of nothing, you know, like finally some sort of hope in this process of like, maybe it won't work out, but at least we're doing something, you know, working towards an end goal.
0: Absolutely. Um, well, how can people find you and connect with you and, um, you know, possibly purchase your book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, my book is available on Amazon, Target, Barnes and Noble, uh, Walmart. So anywhere really that books are sold, um, um, our, um Hope Infertility is on Instagram at hope.infertility. It's where we share stories of women who've made it to the other side or girls who are in the midst of struggling or in the midst of cycles and um, we really just—I want to make sure that people are feeling rooted on and loved for and cared for, because that was something I felt like I lacked while I was going through my journey. So I just want to make sure that I am, you know, that crazy cheerleader on the side that's just encouraging you, you on in your journey. And then finally, if you want to reach out to me directly, you can uh, contact me at whitneyhenneman.com, and there's a contact link where you can send me a message directly.
0: Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Whitney. It's been awesome talking to you. I
1: know. I've loved it. Thank you so much for having me on, Millie. Absolutely. We'll see you soon. Okay. Sounds good. Bye.